there is so much evidence and research nationally that makes it very clear that high school GPA is the best predictor of student success, especially true for Latinx and Black students who may not score as well on a test. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. That was Michelle Sequeiros, president of the Campaign for College Opportunity, giving one reason why she thought the University of California should abandon the SAT and ACT as a requirement for admission. And that's, in fact, what UC did this week. Yeah, that was really big news. UC is by far the largest college system to do this, so it will be really interesting to sit back and watch the reaction nationwide. Yes, our reporter, Larry Gordon, who has been covering higher education for many years and, in fact, has been covering this very issue, which has been on and off the university's agenda several times, has written a really thorough and nuanced piece in EdSource. So uh, if you want to know more about this, check it out on our website. It's interesting that the pandemic probably helped jumpstart this pretty dramatic move by the university. You may recall that a few weeks ago, the university voted to put the SAT and ACT on hold because students really couldn't take the SAT. High school juniors who are going to be applying in the fall to UC, the tests were canceled. So the university really had no choice but to put it on hold for at least the coming year. And uh, that really opened the door to doing away with it completely. But, uh, you know, a big deal. You'll also recall a few weeks ago, we talked on this podcast about a faculty committee, a very distinguished faculty committee, who recommended just the opposite, that the university not abandon these admissions tests. But then President Janet Napolitano, in the last few months as president of the university, went against the faculty committee and made the recommendation that the regents ultimately approved. Well, as an alternative, the university is coming up with its own test by 2025. Yeah, that's at least the plan. So uh, students are not going to be off the hook altogether in terms of taking a test. But uh, it's going to be very interesting to see if uh, the university will be able to come up with a better test that doesn't have some of the same drawbacks that the critics of the SAT and ACT have uh, said is the case. Also this week, State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurmond, hosted an online meeting for school district superintendents to tackle what really is the biggest issue, most problematical issue that they and many parents and students are facing, and that is when schools will reopen in the fall and under what conditions. Well, actually, there wasn't much to come out of that conference to report probably to the disappointment of many of those who tuned in, expecting some guidance from the California Department of Education on what will be needed to reopen schools in the fall. But there was a lot of talk about the need for more funding to open schools. So we'll report on what Superintendent Thurman and the other participants said and didn't say later in the episode. But first, let's focus on the plight of homeless students. They haven't gotten much attention during this crisis, Lewis. Yes, John, there are an estimated 200,000 of them, approximately, out of about 6 million kids in California public schools. And one of the challenges is that they were very hard to keep track of before the pandemic. And now that they don't have to show up to school, it's even harder to know who they are and where they are. Our reporter, Carolyn Jones, has been reporting on this issue, and I asked her whether homeless kids are being affected by the crisis differently from other kids. Well, from what I understand, it's been particularly tough on homeless kids because families 
are having to move a lot. And so kids' routines are being disrupted. And if they were going to a certain school, but then suddenly their parents lost the job or were evicted from a motel or don't want to stay at a shelter because they're afraid of getting coronavirus. And so they move somewhere else. And so kids are just a little bit more disconnected than they were and having a harder time connecting with their teachers or, or school in general. And then also, you know, internet. Some of them might have Chromebooks that they got from school, but they don't have internet access. I talked to one kid in San Diego who's staying at a motel with his family and the internet access is terrible. And so to do classwork, he goes and sits in a parking lot at McDonald's you know, he feels lucky to have that option. But yeah, it's been particularly hard on homeless kids and advocates and schools and teachers fear that they're going to lose a lot of these kids. They might just get disconnected from school and then not come back. You've also raised something I hadn't really thought about, that there may be a number of kids who are rendered homeless during this crisis. That's the other huge issue is that California right now has about 200,000 homeless students. And the number is probably a significant low count underestimate. But during this period, that number is expected to shoot way up, especially as all these moratoriums on evictions expire. They're expecting a lot of families who were kind of on the edge before, but might have had a place to live. A lot of those people are going to have suddenly no place to live, especially over the summer. There's this concern that there's a lot of kids are just going to scatter to the winds. And when you say a moratorium, the state has said that you can't evict anybody for, is it the next three months? I think it's a lot of individual cities have passed these eviction moratoriums. And then also, you know, people might have gotten their $1,200 stimulus money, but that's going to run out. I mean, how long does that last you in California? Not very long. You know, I talked to one family that was staying in a motel. They had enough money to get through this week, but next week they have no idea. You know, no one was working. They were all really trying to work. But of course, there's no jobs. They can't work. They're afraid. They were literally hungry. Like this family, you know, the kids were getting free lunches at school and they were bringing it back to the motel to share with the whole family. And that's what the family was living on. So a lot of people are just on the brink. And just tell us briefly, I mean, how are school districts responding to this? Uh, Obviously, I'm sure every school district, every educator is concerned about these kids. And their families. Yeah, some districts haven't done much, but some districts have really taken extraordinary measures to reach these kids and really made it a priority. Teachers every single day are reaching out to their kids who they think might be homeless or are at risk of becoming homeless. You know, every single day calling them, you know, do you have everything you need? Do you you need? They're giving out grocery cards or housing vouchers or bus vouchers or hygiene kits, school supplies, Chromebooks, Wi-Fi hotspots you know, connecting people with services. Every single day they're calling. Some teachers are really going above and beyond. That was EdSource reporter Carolyn Jones. We asked Carolyn which districts were especially proactive in addressing the needs of homeless students, and she named big urban districts, including San Francisco and Oakland, as well as some rural districts like Lake County. But she had particular praise for San Diego Unified, and we're fortunate to have Susie Terry with us. She's the coordinator for Homeless Education Services in the San Diego County Office of Education. Welcome, Susie. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Susie, you've got quite a big responsibility. I understand there are 23,000 homeless students or students who are defined as homeless in 43 districts. 100 charter schools, must be tough to keep tabs on these students at the best of times, right? Yes, it definitely is. They're a highly mobile population. Their situations change often. Their ability to have communication 
with their schools and their school districts is constantly changing for a lot of these families. I imagine that the challenge has been exacerbated during this uh, time when students are working remotely or, you know, not even in school. Yes, absolutely. Keeping track of families, locating families has become really difficult, especially if they don't have the school house, so to speak, to at least make contact with students every day. If their families have run out of cell phone minutes or they don't have a cell phone, a moratorium on evictions doesn't help a family who may have just been staying somewhere and they're not the one on the lease. It doesn't help you if you're living in a hotel or motel and you are no longer able to stay. So there's been a real shift and increase in the mobility of these families, and it's made it very difficult for schools to keep track. So how actually are school districts doing that? Do they actually have to go out and find them? I mean, that would also be challenging during the time when everyone is supposed to be sheltering in place, other than emergency workers and so on. Absolutely. A lot of school districts are going out and doing home checks or home visits. They're also making a lot of efforts to, as all of the school districts ramped up, to be able to continue providing meals which all of our families are automatically eligible for free meals at school. And for a lot of kids, that's the best meal they get all day long. They're checking in with families as they show up to access meals. You know, our recommendation is for schools to do outreach frequently and in as many different ways as possible. So any communications going out from the school about COVID and about the current situation, we're asking they include information for families whose housing situations might be changing or may have changed and making sure those families know there is a person they should be contacting. There is support available to them through their schools. The uh, emotional impact, the sort of trauma that some students are facing must be just compounded for homeless students. What, what are you finding, Susie? I think that's true. I think in general, homelessness is inherently traumatic. It's oftentimes violent and chaotic. And so this situation just adds to those vulnerabilities for students. They, I think, are missing that one stable, secure, safe place to go every day, all day long for a lot of students. They're also, through distance learning, we're realizing that a lot of students are being asked to invite their peers and their teachers into their living spaces in a way that they never would have before. And for some students that creates anxiety or shame around just that situation in and of itself. So there, yeah, there are a lot of factors that are sort of compounding the traumatic nature of homelessness. I did want to ask you about, well, as you know very well, definition of homelessness for at least schools. It's not necessarily you're on the street, but it, you can be staying with a family member temporarily or a friend on a couch or maybe extra room. That's still defined as homeless. So some people might say, well, that's not so bad. At least they do have a place to stay. But is that problematical as well? Yes. And it's true that the definition for the Department of Education is more broad and does include families that stay with a friend or a family member due to loss of housing or economic hardship. I think one of the things we know about people who become homeless with children is they're much more likely to use that as their first option is to find somebody who will take them in 
so that they don't have to have their children in a shelter or in the car or something. So it's a really common situation for families without housing that have children, but they're not on a lease. They don't have legal rights under this pandemic situation. There's a lot of fear. Um, Family members or friends may have decided that it's too much. You can't stay. We're not going to have enough room to self-isolate if necessary, or we're worried that we're going to get sick if we let you stay. So um, the situation's definitely tenuous for those families as well. One of the things that we come across under normal circumstances with doubled up families is they might be reluctant to give their address information to the school because they're staying with someone who maybe has Section 8 housing, and they're not allowed to let other people stay with them. And if they do, they'll lose their Section 8 approval. And so this situation where nobody is out of the house all day long is also creating a lot of fear on the part of people who have allowed their family members or a friend to come stay and aren't supposed to have extra people in their space. And now it's going to be a lot more obvious that they have people there. So we're definitely hearing just anecdotally across the county that a lot more families are losing their place where they were being allowed to stay. Are you projecting that there's going to be more homeless kids during this crisis, that that 23,000 number could actually go up? We expect to see an increase next school year in the number of students experiencing homelessness. Even families who haven't been in this situation before, but due to loss of jobs and income that may not be able to make that up when the eviction moratorium gets lifted or weren't in a situation where they were on a lease, are now going to be in a similar situation. How could school districts better help the homeless and what recommendations are you making now that they should be doing? A couple of things, frequent outreach, understanding that students have lost a stable place in their life and they've lost some connection to people that care about them. So outreach check-ins that are occurring frequently, making sure the family knows that somebody does care about them and wants them to stay connected to school goes a long way. We're recommending that they make extra efforts in a couple of different ways to locate families that they may have tried to outreach to and can't find through coordinating with shelter providers and service providers. So those agencies know that if families are showing up to be connecting them back to their school, making sure they let families know, you know, your school has supports for you. They want you to stay connected. It's really easy to just quit going to school when you have all these other things going on. And we know that, but we also know how important it is that education is definitely a pathway out of homelessness for a lot of people. We've been talking with Susie Terry, Homeless Liaison for the San Diego County Office of Education. Thank you for joining us today, but most importantly, thank you for your work. So important to all of us in California. Thank you so much. Well, there is one potential piece of good news that Carolyn reports, and that's a bipartisan group of U.S. senators is proposing $1 billion specifically for homeless students in the next federal stimulus bill. That's a good start because there doesn't seem to be at this point much otherwise that Republicans and Democrats agree on. That's unfortunate because if there was a single message that Tony Thurman made clear at the forum he led was that California urgently needs more federal funding to reopen schools in a few months. 
John, we both listened in on that forum, and it's probably fair to say that many of the more than 1,000 people who signed up and the many more who followed along on Facebook were hoping to get some specific guidance from the state for how districts can begin reopening schools. But Superintendent Thurman said that that guidance would be provided in the coming days or even weeks, kind of pushing it back to the districts to decide uh, what they will be doing in the meantime. Well, Tony Thurman reinforced what education groups, specifically groups called the Education Coalition, and a half dozen urban superintendents said in letters this week, and that is more funding, especially federal funding, really is a prerequisite to safe in-person reopening of schools. We hear you loud and clear, all, all of our superintendents and our teachers and our classified staff and all of the educational associations who said that you cannot reopen with social distancing conditions in place if you're going to experience cuts. We hear you loud and clear, and we agree with you that we cannot ask schools to do more with less. We understand that adding social distancing conditions are are unavoidable expenses. They cannot be avoided, but they must be provided for the safety of our students. Now, clearly, uh, you know, we appreciate the governor's uh, work to try and be creative in using dollars to offset as much impact from our schools as possible. Even so, there have been some impacts in the proposed budget, and we have to see how that budget plays out in the legislature as it reaches its final destination. Clearly, we need the assistance of the federal government. Cindy Martin, who's superintendent of San Diego Unified, signed the urban superintendent's letter, John, that you just mentioned. She participated in the forum. This is what she had to say. This is not politics. This is math. We cannot absorb a 10% cut in LCF funding at the same time that we're trying to do more to reopen safely. And finally, Erica Jones, a teacher and a board member of CTA who wrote out the recession, the Great Recession, as a teacher in Los Angeles Unified, she said that teachers are feeling pretty insecure not knowing how the budget cuts that the governor proposes in this latest revision of a state budget, how those cuts will play out. I lived through 2008. I have my collection of pink slips from 2008. I know the cuts that happened. I know how my class size increased overnight. And so looking at this, like what seems to be a very bleak future, how can we really imagine what our classrooms could be under the guidance of you know, science, right? And making sure our students are safe, but knowing that we have massive cuts coming, right? So this isn't the time right now to even think about layoffs. Yeah, John, I should just clarify that these are cuts that Governor Newsom really didn't want to make, but has no choice given the more or less collapse of the state's economy. But yes, all eyes are now on Washington to come up with more money. Uh, Education groups have been pushing for a $175 billion uh, bailout, more than what schools received during the Great Recession. But uh, even in the Democratic bill that the House of Representatives passed, they only allocated $100 billion. I mean, that's a significant amount of money. But uh, the view is that the schools are in worse shape this time around than they were during the Great Recession. And so more funds will be needed. But uh, no signs yet that Congress will come through with those funds. It's a tricky message to give that, in fact, schools were, you know, dependent on more federal funding. That's that's really not what parents want to hear. And, you know, there's no question that an 8% budget cut, which is what the governor's proposing to district's general funding, that, that's substantial, particularly at a time that districts are facing additional costs of reopening schools. But 
you know, at the same time, you have to keep in mind that the governor is proposing to direct $4 billion from the stimulus bill or the coronavirus bill that's already been passed called the CARES Act. He's directing $4 billion of that to schools to help them reopen. So it's not as if he's not doing something significant already. So, John, what kind of guidance are school districts actually looking for? Well, a lot of these are health decisions, for example, you know, not only when to reopen school under what conditions, but how do you deal with it from a health perspective? How would testing look like? What does social distancing mean? Should kids wear masks or not wear masks? And if they don't wear masks? So those are the kinds of basic things that they need to know. And then there are other things about distance learning. You know, the, the governor up till now, he said, do distance learning to the extent feasible. I think school districts are looking for more guidance when you get into these hybrid models where kids come in and out and, and, and they want to know whether instructional time will be waived and how attendance is going to work. This is really complicated stuff. And no one's really clear as to what the policies will be. And that's something they're going to have to wade through over the next two months. And Lewis, it's, it's really not a lot of time. There's so many complexities. I mean, one is that you can have elementary school kids in, in a classroom. they usually with one teacher most of the day or the entire day. And uh, then the issue is how do you do this with middle school and high school students who move around a lot and those schools are often very crowded. And so uh, it's an enormously complicated uh, set of issues. And perhaps uh, it's no, no surprise that the California Department of Education wasn't able to come up with some guidance yet. Uh, needs a little more time, apparently. Yeah, we talk about distance learning as if it's one generic thing. But as you just said, you know, how you treat high school students where they're often 30, 35, 40 kids in a class would be different from an elementary school where they're 22. And how that spacing and distance is going to work. And then what happens to child care if you're going, coming to school two days a week and three days a week you're home and parents have to be at work. All this is very difficult and there's no model in effect now to look at. Well, John, I think we better leave it at that. My head is spinning. <laughs> so I imagine our listeners' heads are spinning as well. Hopefully by next week we'll have more clarity on a number of these issues. And uh, we're going to leave it at that for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Stay well. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 